you. When we're looking at the words that I read earlier, um, I'll just read the first seven verses again. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. I want you to see in this portion of Luke 2, well known, probably the most famous Christmas passage, it's offering us a choice between two completely different visions of power between two different models of life, two regimes under one of which we all must live. There is two kings in this passage and Luke draws a contrast very deliberately. In verse 1 you have the kingship of Caesar Augusta and then in verse 7 you have the kingship of Jesus who is the Christ. Caesar Augustus, when he speaks a royal decree, the whole world conforms to his purpose. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. There's plenty of decrees going around at the moment and we dread them, don't we? What's going to be next? Hopefully nothing at all. But he is the em Emperor Octavian, called Caesar Augustus by the Roman Senate. And he is responsible for ushering in an era of extraordinary peace in the Roman Empire uh, at the end of years of civil war and strife. The poet Virgil, about 40 BC, spoke about a day of coming peace when nature would be renewed and sin and guilt removed. And Druin Augustus, his reign, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, it began, it began to be whispered around the Roman Empire that perhaps that new golden era had dawned under this Caesar and his reign at Rome. An altar was built. It was called the Ara Paxis Augusti. And it was the great altar of peace to celebrate his reign and the peace that Octavian ushered in. Some of the cities, the Greek cities of Asia Minor, dated their new year from Augustus's birth, which was 23rd of September. At the city of Halicarnassus, Halicarnassus, one inscription to Octavian, Caesar Augustus, called him the saviour of the world. He was the very embodiment of political power. He was the world's king. They even called him the saviour of the world. The whole world bowed before Octavian. The whole world honoured Caesar. 
And then, in verse 7, you have a baby. A baby that's not even named yet. That has to wait to verse 21, as we read earlier. The baby doesn't even receive a name. He is simply Mary's firstborn. Do you remember the Annunciation? When, Abe, when, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary to explain to her the significance of her pregnancy and the identity of the child that she was carrying. The angel certainly raised the expectations of this child. The angel Gabriel said he would be great. He'd be called the son of the Most High and that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there would be no end. The child to be born of Mary will have a kingdom which far surpasses that of Caesar Augustus. And then Mary's song, the Magnificat, in Luke 1. Mary raises our expectations even higher. She said that her baby will usher in an age when the proud will be humbled and those of humble estate will be exalted. The hungry will be filled with good things, the rich sent away empty. The ancient promises made to Father Abraham millennia ago will at last be fulfilled and a new era of messianic fullness would dawn. And so, now, at last, at the moment of his arrival upon the scene of human history, we look with urgency and expectation for a sign of his kingly dignity and majesty, some outward emblem of his true purpose and destiny. And what do we find? A peasant family with a nameless baby laid in a makeshift crib, recently used as a feeding trough for cattle. It's a stunning contrast. And it, asks, it forces us to ask the question, what kind of king do we want? Because that is the question that the Christmas story really does ask, force on all of us. What kind of king do you want? What kind of kingdom will you live in? What kind of life will be yours? There is the world's model. Live for your best life now. It's embodied by no better than Caesar Augustus. Live for today. Power, wealth, riches, fame, celebrity, human success, well thought of by the world. Everything that we might aspire to in terms of the world's benefits, outward glory, praise, then there is the kingdom of God that came into the world without displays of glory, without expressions of power, simply a babe born in humble surroundings as one of us. Now if those are the two models, the two kings, the two kingdoms, the two realms, the two ways of living, why would anyone choose the baby over Caesar Augustus? Why would anyone choose the baby born in the manger 
over the greatest leader that the world could produce. I want to walk through Luke's presentation quickly of the birth of Jesus to draw out four themes that help us understand what kind of king King Jesus is. To help us resolve that dilemma, that question that the Christian gospel forces on us. Before which king will you bow? We aspire to be Caesar Augustus, but the Christian gospel says instead of seeking to be king, to be worshipped, to be glorious, to be mighty, to be successful, the Christian gospel says you need to bend your knee to a different kind of king altogether. That is the gospel. Four themes. He is a sovereign king, he is the promised king, he is the representative king, and he is the servant king. He is the sovereign king. In Luke 1, he sets out his purpose in writing. Luke wants to provide a, an account on eyewitness testimony to Theophilus, for whom he is writing, so that Theophilus and us might have certainty about the things that he has taught concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Luke is concerned to help Theophilus know and us know that if Jesus Christ and the truth concerning him is not historical fact, it is not worth believing at all. It is not true in any sense. And you see the same concern in these opening verses. In verses 1 to 3, he is keen to show us that Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the world should be registered. And the whole empire responds to that decree. And locally, Quirinus, governor of Syria, obeyed the decree of Caesar. And this wonderful family, like many others, made their way to their ancestral home to be registered in the census. In other words, Luke wants us to see you can plot the birth of Jesus on a historical timeline with the rise and falls of Caesar. It wasn't the second census that Quirinus took, it's the first. He's so specific to show us that this is real history. If you're a history buff, you'll appreciate this. This is history. That Jesus, whoever he is and whatever the significance of his coming, has to operate in the real world, the same world within which we all dwell. His kingship, such as it is, is a kingship for the real world and for our challenges day by day. The census goes out, Mary and Joseph, in obedience to the law, made their way to Bethlehem. And I want you to notice that it is the decree of a distant emperor that stands behind and compels their journey to Bethlehem. Now, doubtless Augustus spared Neri a second thought for Palestine or the people under the rule and governor of Quirinus when he issued the decree. But it is precisely because of the decree that Augustus issued that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But if you know the Gospel accounts in Matthew 1, when the wise men were following the star, they came to Jerusalem seeking the Christ child. And Herod finds out about their quest. And he summons the scribes and teachers and says, Where does the Bible say that Messiah will be born? Where does the Bible say that the Messiah will be born? Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Do you see the point that the mighty Emperor Augustus, with all the political power at his disposal, he can order the peoples of the empire to be counted, sent peasant families from their home to fulfil his law. This king is the servant of the promises and purposes of God. He, he was so powerful, but he was used by God to fulfil his promise. Augustus's decree serves the Lord Jesus. His power is bent to accomplish Christ's coming in precisely the way that God said it would. It is bent to serve the mission of Jesus Christ. This, this tiny peasant baby cradled in Mary's arms, the very picture of vulnerability, that baby makes the greatest man in the world his agent and instrument. Jesus is the real king. He is the real sovereign. He has real power. He governs all things. The baby born in the stable is the Lord of life himself. And even Caesar serves his agenda and accomplishes his purpose. And that means that for everyone who bows the knee to Jesus, there, there, is, there is extraordinary comfort and hope. I don't know about you, but I find every day it's like a seesaw, isn't it? Good news, bad news, middle news, really bad news, really good news. And then they just throw out a headline at 11.30 on Christmas Eve, just to keep you, keep you, keep you down. It's chaotic, it's unpredictable, it's fearful. Everywhere around you see fear. You see human fear. But we have hope, my friends. We have hope because Jesus has come. And no one, absolutely no one, goes to glory before their time. Absolutely no one. And no one dies before their time. So in a chaotic, unpredictable, fearful world, when 2022 holds fears, restrictions, we live under the grip and under the reign of King Jesus, in whose kingdom God works all things, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To know that enables us to face the future, not terrified, not terrified, but in faith and with hope and in confidence. That is, that is the Christian message. It is not be fearful, it is have hope. And if you don't hear it from a Christian pulpit, where will you hear it? Because Jesus is the sovereign king. He is the sovereign king, but he is the promised king. Micah 5 promised that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, Luke says it is the city of David. So Mary and Joseph made their way there because they have the house and lineage of David. The repetition of David is the clue. In scripture, the city of David usually refers to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5 verse 9, when David captured Jerusalem, that was inhabited by the Jebusites, 
We're told that David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David's capital was Jerusalem, but Bethlehem is the city of David because it is the place where he was born. And Luke wants us to understand that with the coming of Jesus, we not only have David's heir, but David's successor. He is great, great David's greater son. He is David Mark II, the greater than David. And the prophets, that's how the prophets spoke of him. Ezekiel, writing 400 years after David died, promised that one day a new David would come. Ezekiel said, I will set up over my people one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And that's why Micah 5 says that the Messiah will be born in the same place as David was born. So here is the new king for Israel, whom God had promised David would sit on his throne and rule his kingdom forever. That is what the angel told Mary. God shall give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. My dear friend, God always keeps his promises. There will be times that are sore and are hard and dark. There will be seasons when sickness, sorrow or sin will obscure for you your confidence in the promises of God. Will he keep his promises to me? And in those moments you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and find his answer. In Jesus Christ, God's response to your uncertain cry, can I really trust you, Lord, is yes, of course, you can trust him. God kept his promise in the coming of the Messiah. He is a promised king. In him, all his promises are yea and amen. He is a sovereign king. He is a promised king. He is a representative king, thirdly. Augustus issued a decree and Jesus with his family was registered in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Emmanuel, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And before him, one day, all the rulers of the earth shall bow. God the Father shall make his enemies a footstool for his feet one day. If you cast your mind just over the world's rulers today, every one of them will bow their knee to Jesus. The little guy in North Korea, the president of China, Putin, Biden, Johnson will all one day bow the knee to King Jesus. Of his kingdom there shall be no end, and the knowledge of the Lord shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea one day. And yet here he is for now. Just another name on the registrar's list. Probably not the only name. Yeshua. Yeshua. So if you were doing historical research and you went to the registrar's office at the government headquarters where Quirinus presided and you got the register out and you ran your finger down You'd come to Yeshua ben Joseph, born to Mary of Nazareth of the house and lineage of David in Bethlehem when Quirinus was governor. Nothing to mark him out as unusual at all. 
He was born among us as one of us. Go to Jesus' baptism. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is preaching on the banks of the Jordan. The whole community is gripped by his preaching ministry. <coughs> Convicted of sin, their need to be reconciled to God. And they came out in their numbers to be baptised by John in the Jordan River. And there in turn, think about it, just think about it. Just imagine John the Baptist is preaching, he's calling people to repentance, and he's baptising in the Jordan River. There's a tax collector. There's an adulterer. There's a rabbi. There's a prostitute. There's a man who is well known for his fits of anger. There is another man who's known for his pride. And all of them, convicted of sin, longing to be right with God, and have come out to John to be baptised. The petty thief. A drunkard, a liar, Jesus, a gossip, a shady businessman. What is he doing there? What is he doing there? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. What was he doing there? Why was he there with the guilty, the shameful, the unclean? He is there to fulfil all righteousness. He is there, though he has no sin, to stand in solidarity with sinners like me, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. My friend, Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. And where we fail to obey, he obeyed for us. Where we cannot pay the penalty for transgressions, that my transgressions deserve, he made full payment for me. He is our representative. He is one of us. He is glorious. He is beautiful. Because he's not simply a king to rule over us, but a king who represents us to God. Who knows what it is like to deal with and bear our grief, carry the burden of condemnation, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here is one to whom you can go. He is a representative king. Who is Jesus? He is the sovereign king. He is also the representative king. And finally, he's the servant king. So he's the sovereign king, he's the promised king, he's the representative king, he is the servant king. Did you see the descending order of importance by the world standards of the names that are listed in what I read in Luke 2? You have Caesar Augustus, Emperor Octavian, the greatest man in the world. Then you have Quirinus, governor of Syria. Then you have Joseph and Mary, his betrothed of the house and lineage of David. And in verse 7 there is a baby, Mary's firstborn, who does not even yet have a name. Luke makes a similar point in other ways in the passage. Most notably at the end of verse 7, we're told he was laid in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. The emphasis is on humility, poverty, weakness, insignificance. The word that Luke uses for an inn doesn't really mean a kind of hotel. It means a large guest room at one end where the guests would sleep 
and at the other end where the animals would be kept, all under one room, that was very common. Mary and Joseph are in the guest room, they are, and we don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before labour began, but there was insufficient room at the guest end of the room, so they overflowed into the other end of the room where the animals ordinarily were kept. But the emphasis is on the poverty and the humility and the weakness and the ordinariness of the scene. What is the message? The Lord of life, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, made flesh, the King before he was a baby, came among us. The King long promised is born in a stable. Although the Lord Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, but being born in likeness of men. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Luke 2 verse 7, we're seeing the beginning of his ministry that climaxed at the cross, where the Lord Jesus unlike any other king, unlike the way the world exercises power for self-protection, for self-preservation, here is a king who thought not of himself. He didn't think of his reputation. He didn't think what he looked like in the media. He poured himself out in the service of others who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He said to his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. He is the Lord's servant, upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. He is a servant king who poured his life out, because greater love has no one than this, and he would lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his friends at the cross, my friend, I commend to you today, on Christmas Day, the Lord Jesus. The world's model may well have captured your heart. You may be th sitting here thinking, promotion, success, earthly, just if I can get there here, material wealth, fame, prominence, social standing, but there is another way to live. There really is a better way to live. And there is another king before whom the gospel calls you. The gospel invites you to bow, who can deal with the only thing that your heart really needs. Not what the world tells you that you, they, that you need. What your heart really needs is a clean conscience. You need to have peace with God. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to have forgiveness from sin. We all need to be forgiven. We need to be adopted into his family. We need to belong to the people of God. Can you say with conviction in your heart that you belong to God's people? Not that you come to church, but that you belong to the people of God. So would you take a look at King Jesus this morning? And bend your knee to him. That the true joy, the true joy of Christmas Day 
might not only be in the laughter and the celebration and the turkey and the goose and whatever you're having of being together with loved ones, but it might be the joy of Christmas this, this year that you know the redeeming grace of God for you in his son who is his great gift to you now and forever. May the Lord bless the word. Amen.